Hi, this is Sam Ramji, and you're listening to Open Source Data. Biang Liu is CTO and co-founder of Sourcegraph, a universal code search that lets developers focus on solving problems. Prior to Sourcegraph, Biang was a software engineer at Palantir Technologies, where he developed new data analysis software on a small customer-facing team working with Fortune 500 companies. Biang studied computer science at Stanford, where he published research in probabilistic graphical models and computer vision at the Stanford AI lab, where he thoroughly enjoyed his compilers course. So you and I have shared a bunch of elements of our journey in helping developers be more productive. That's also been really difficult to build companies in. There are a lot of reasons for that, but fundamentally all of it relates to the lack of data about development and developer markets and the data that we have is a side effect of using software tools and building a lot of code. And that has gotten us to a pretty magical place for you to build Sourcegraph. In that context, I'm super curious, what does open source data mean to you? As a developer tools builder, I really come at this from the angle of viewing code as a form of data. We don't often think of it that way. We think of code as manipulating data, but code itself is a form of data. And it's a data set that as a developer, you're exploring, you're trying to understand, make sense of on a day-to-day basis. In fact, for most software engineers, the bigger part of your job is not writing new code. It's actually making sense and understanding all the code that already exists, whether it's in your organization or out there in the world of open source. Trying to not reinvent the wheel, make use of a library that already exists. You know, when it comes to open source data, a lot of the code in the world these days is already open source. And there's also tools that you can use to explore that data that are open source or open core, where you can introspect into how that tool works. And it's this widely available thing that anyone can adopt. That's awesome. The connectedness of all the code bases has really transformed how we can think about doing software, including how do we understand the dependencies? There's a global level a security initiative underway now, which you're probably super familiar with, called the OpenSSF, which is about securing the software supply chain, which becomes another part of treating all of the data about all the nodes, about all the packages, about all the origin points, and somehow doing computations of that that will fit in the CICD path to know, am I shipping software that's secure or not? So data seems like it is the key that can unlock a whole bunch more of the things that we care about in software day to day. What was your inspiration to create Sourcegraph? I'm drawing on some history at Google where we had a monorepo. We built a lot of tools internally, like Tricorder, where you could look at the monorepo, you could understand what your different dependencies were, and then you could let everybody know how to be a good citizen if they're going to check in code that will change those dependencies. There were a lot of programs that would let you know a little bit about the software architecture. How do you ramp yourself up for an independent company to go like, hey, I'm going to build an amazing developer tool. And more than just like doing an open source thing, I'm going to build a company around it. It takes chutzpah, right? It takes a lot of belief, a lot of intellect, and a hell of a lot of energy. I think there are many sources of inspiration for Sourcegraph from my point of view. It's always hard to boil down a thing to one specific eureka moment. But just to touch on a couple points in inspiration, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Google Code Search. Sam, I know you were at Google for a bit and got to experience some of the amazing internal developer tools that Google has built. And at least when I was there, the centerpiece of that experience was this code search engine that indexed all the code inside Google and made it accessible to every developer, whether you were an intern or very senior Jeff Dean level engineer. And at the time, I didn't realize it. It was really 
probably like years later, I think one of the catalyzing moments for me for Sourcegraph was working as a developer at Palantir. That was my first job really out of school. And I got drop shipped into this large complex code base that had been through multiple owners. It was a bit messy. And I just remember at the end of that first month or so, taking a look back and ask myself, what have I actually accomplished here? I've been spending all my time just trying to make sense of what's going on in this code and figuring out why it's written the way it is. And it seems like more of my job is just exploring the code that exists and figuring out how the relatively small piece that I'm trying to add fits into that broader picture. And then I thought back to those experiences at Google, where it was so much easier to go and figure out what was out there. And so I, I wanted something like that. My co-founder, Quinn, who was working with me at Palantir, we both wanted that. He brought some experience from the open source side of things. He'd used tools like OpenGrok, which is an open source code search engine that was developed out of, I think it was Sun Microsystems originally. And so we got to talking more about this itch that we wanted to scratch. And out of those discussions emerged the idea that became Sourcegraph. That is pretty cool. It's really bold. I don't know if you're a science fiction fan, but there's a writer who's also a computer scientist in real life. He's an academic. His name is Werner Vinge. His wife is a fairly famous science fiction writer named Joan Vin. So Werner wrote a really neat series of novels, but it started for me with Fire Upon the Deep. And these are about spaceships that travel according to most of our normal rules of space. He didn't create fast and light travel. So these spaceships will go for 10,000 years from point to point. And he kind of reasonably thought, well, they're going to use software systems to power the ships. But over time, like a society, if you can imagine a 10,000-year-long society, yeah, maybe some people are frozen and they're going to get thawed out, but there's a bunch of people who have to respond to problems that weren't programmed in. So there's this kind of skeleton crew, and most of them are programmers. So they have these different titles, like who does the weapon system? Well, that's the programmer at arms. One of this guy's hero characters got his start as a programmer archaeologist. <laughs> because amazing. the old system, the life support systems were way down at the bottom. Think about how we look at mainframes, which frankly are only 40 or 50 years old, really, when we think about COBOL and the different ways that we program. 10,000 years, like you had better believe that they must have a source graph <laughs> 10,000 <laughs> years in the future if they want everybody to wake up from cold sleep, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's incredible. You know, that term code archaeology, we actually hear it used by some of our customers in reference to some of the code bases they have to sift through. And again, this is far and away not as bad as sifting through 10,000 years of human history locked up in source code. But I think it speaks to the hairiness of this problem that even uncovering something that's 10, 20 years old, if you have a 40-year-old code base, people look at you like you're Indiana Jones or something. It's such a real challenge and also a limiting factor because a lot of our software infrastructure today still happens to be built on top of those code bases. A lot of the financial infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure that powers our world, guess what? If you want to make an improvement to that system, it's not as simple as just making the change. You got to go and understand the context that your improvement has to fit into. I've spent, my gosh, almost 25 years chasing my curiosity about distributed systems. And the one thing that I can say that I understand having come through that quarter century is the best line of code is the line of code you didn't write. So it's even more important to understand what you can call on than to go back in and change it. But you have to understand call paths. One of the most interesting changes I think right now is the future of smart contracts. So it's historical to say, hey, it's been 10 years since Andreessen said software is eating the world. And now every 
company on the Global 2000 is running most of their business through software. And if they want to change their business, they need to change the code. So that's a material change just in our lifetime. But the material change ahead of us is that contracts, instead of being written by lawyers, are being written by software developers. As we start to get to this provably correct, provably safe, provably honest world of how we're going to do business relationships, which I think is the really interesting thing about blockchain. I'm less curious about Bitcoin or various forms of cryptocurrency. Wow, the whole field of the future of contract <laughs> law starts to open up into, hey, did you code this correctly? What can we use? And in fact, even the wallet attacks that we've seen in the Bitcoin era have been programmatic contracts that someone couldn't review, didn't have the competency to understand and accept it into their wallet. And then boom, funds were transferred. So the primacy of what you're doing, increasing code intelligence, seems like it's just beginning. It's the dawn of the source graph era. What do you see in terms of the future of the technology? What do you see in terms of the power of intelligence and visualization? What do these things fit in your head as you build better capabilities for developers? I think we're still very much in the early days of software eating the world. You know, it's been 10 years since Mark Andreessen wrote that post, but it still feels like the very tip of the iceberg. The, the analog that a lot of people draw is to prose literacy. We once lived in a world where being able to read and write was limited to a very small elite portion of society. And that limited the extent to which human civilization could advance. Even today, we still speak of software as a distinct sector. We still have this special role called software engineer. That's a distinct role. And we don't yet natively think of everyone's job, everyone's lives as being affected by code and for them to have an active role to participate in the development and creation of that code. When I think about the future of Sourcegraph is really the future of this global human knowledge base that we're constructing, you know, similar to the World Wide Web, the internet, where that was an amazing thing that came along. I think we're starting to see something like that emerge in the world of code, like the open source ecosystem is this amazing, decentralized, distributed store of human knowledge that encapsulates all these algorithms and data structures and systems that are then pulled into all these systems that we rely on in our lives. And so far, no one has really tried to map that web of knowledge in the same way that Google has mapped the internet. And we kind of want to do that, you know, shepherd that future into reality and make that knowledge base accessible to everyone in the same way that if you want to surf the web these days, you don't have to acquire a four-year degree and learn how to you know, surf the web. You just open up a web browser, open up Google, type in a query, and you're good to go. We want to make exploring code as easy as that experience. That is some intense insight, I think, that you're offering. The term literacy, and I've heard recently a term numeracy, becoming numerically competent so we can think about things at scale, are becoming part of our social fabric. You can't get a, a wet science degree in biology or environmental sciences without getting some data science in there. But even more so, the kids that we're raising now are participating in Roblox. The games themselves are teaching people to program at a much wider scale than we ever saw before. So looking forward 10 years, they're probably going to be way more people who can code. There may or may not be way more software engineers or code writers or program developers, but it becomes competency and a cultural understanding and maybe something more of a lifestyle. Yeah, it's going to be ubiquitous. And you know, when you think about it, 
in the early days of reading and writing, the things that were written down, they were these very formal, esoteric texts, high philosophy. And these days, it's like you have everything from that to novels and fiction and random web blogs on the internet, tweets. It's so ubiquitous now. And I feel like we will reach a point in the future where code is like that, when there is no longer this discrete boundary between someone who codes and someone who doesn't. There's all these integration points and extension points where you can affect the logic of the software systems that you use and rely on. To put another lens on it, if you think about understanding what's going on in code, code is not rocket science. Some of it is, but like most code is not rocket science. It's actually very easy to explain what's going on in a piece of code. You could explain it to a five-year-old But the difficult part for a lot of folks today, and even a lot of great developers, is setting up an environment where it's easy to explore and and navigate code. Setting up a developer environment, that's a big pain. Getting it so that jump to definition and find references works. Most developers won't even do that unless it's a code base that they're working on day to day because it's such a pain. You got to deal with the build system. You got to install various editor plugins. And wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where uh, you didn't have to do all that? You could just open up your web browser, point at a repository, and get started on understanding what's going on in that code. Yeah, that'd be magical. My most recent experience on that was playing a video game called Valheim, uh, which is written in Unity, which is, of course, .NET. And so one of the neat things about the Unity revolution is that more and more developers are basically shipping not just object files, but they're giving you the equivalent of a PDOP, right? They're, they're debug files. And so all these reverse compilers exist that put actually surprisingly readable code artifacts in there that you can start to see like, oh, so there's a big modding community. I don't write mods, but I use mods. And of course, the mods conflict. And so the ability to get into the reverse compiled main code structure of Valheim and understanding what's actually happening, I was able to put in a couple of fixes, send them back to the mod authors, fix it on my environment. And it was an amazingly good feeling. I imagine that that time is coming where it's not just me. I learned to program when I was nine, and that was 41 years ago. I feel very comfortable with all this stuff. But for everybody to feel comfortable, that would be an amazing movement for the world because so many of the great jobs, right, the really high-paying jobs, the value jobs all require this. And so lowering the bar there is exciting. I'm really curious about how source graph works. I wonder if you can take us into the rabbit hole, because when we think about Google search, it uses under the covers a knowledge graph. And Google has to be very protective about making sure that the knowledge graph can't really be reverse engineered. And of course, it's not really one knowledge graph, just like human intelligence is not one intelligence. We produce consciousness over as many as a dozen participating smaller intelligences in our mind. And Google has, I think, as of last report, seven internal knowledge graphs that participate to say, like, this is the domain I really know, and I don't have enough confidence. Let me kick this over to another one. The engineering magic, of course, is it all responds in milliseconds. What is your experience of digging into code and making that incredibly obvious and useful to everyone taking you through? Obviously, you love compilers, but get us into the rabbit hole a little ways. Yeah, totally. There's a lot to dive into there. I just want to say I love Google. I think it's a great tool. I think our approach to building the knowledge graph for code is probably different in the sense that we really do want to build this knowledge graph in the open. We want to make 
use of open source technologies, contribute to the open source community, and make this graph something that's open and universally accessible. And I think Google, I think the, a lot of their business models, perhaps based on the acquisition of user data and making that useful from a business point of view in, in different ways, we don't really have a data play in that same sense. Our business is enterprise software. So at the end of the day, we sell a developer tool that makes developers more productive for money to companies building software. And so our incentives are really to make that tool as great as possible. And I think the best way to do that is to build this graph that's just accessible to every developer that wants to gain access to it. In terms of how we do that, there's a lot that goes into it. Going back to the internet analogy, right? There's maybe like two foundational pieces, one of which is the search component. So this is the Google for code aspect of source graph. And then the other is this global reference graph. So this is where the compilers get involved. This would be the analog of the network of links that link together all the web pages on the internet. And so on the search side, there's a couple of foundational pieces of technology, one of which is an index format that's optimized for searching over code. And we've taken a lot of inspiration from prior work including work done at Google in the form of Russ Cox's initial implementation of Google's internal code search, as well as Hanwen Nienhaus's uh, re-implementation of that in, in the form of an open source library called Zucht. So what this index format is, is just a format that's optimized for searching regular expressions and other patterns in code. And then on the other side of that, the reference graph, there's a lot of compiler libraries that we make use of and contribute back to, and also open protocols. So we've made use of the language server protocol in the past, as well as its sister protocol, ELSIF, which is a serialized version of language server protocol. For those who, who don't know what the LSP is, it's basically this open protocol that abstracts away a lot of the common behaviors that an editor plugin would want to do, like jump to definition and find references. So you can make an, an index or a language server that speaks this protocol, and then it automatically works in every editor that speaks the other end of that protocol. So we made use of that. We've also produced our own protocols. One was called Sourcelib in the very early days, and the latest one is called Skip, S-C-I-P. That's all about providing this kind of language agnostic interface to these language-specific indexers that make use of you know, compiler knowledge to go and then build this global reference graph. That's really powerful, right? It's effectively not exactly meta compilers, but it's engines that can tell you about what's happening, right? It almost represents a little bit more human available knowledge. So you can build higher level tools that act consistently against a range of languages. There's yep. always, of course, going to be portability issues and totally. sort of last mile for each <laughs> specific language, but at least they could take maybe 80, 90% of the pain out as you go from language to language. Yeah, exactly. Even if you take out that 89% of, of the pain, there's still this just long tail of issues that you have to deal with, not so much with language specific support, but more around build systems, just because there's so much, shall we say, diversity in, in how code is built, even within a given language. Everyone does something weird or off the beaten path, especially if it's a private code base. My son's doing his PhD in nanoengineering focused on computational nanochemistry. So the libraries that they use, A, they run on supercomputers, B, they were written by scientists 20 years ago using guess what, Fortran. So you know which language version target is supported on that particular supercomputer cluster how does it work? The amount of time I've watched him go through and coached him a little bit on how to think about structuring and who he ought to talk to to solve the problems, it all comes back to this 
even bigger problem really with software archaeology, which is software reproducibility. Where's the archived container or container set that tells me, A, what was your development environment when you checked this in? And then B, what was a single instance of your deployment environment this is supposed to go to, since we're not in an F5 run world? So this larger universe, I assume, is starting to attract your attention. And if I were a customer of Sourcegraph, I would certainly think, like, these folks know what they're doing. What are their thoughts on dehydrating and rehydrating these kinds of development and production environments? 100%. You know, with our customers, especially the ones that have longer lived code bases, that becomes so important because you have a, a system that's online and running. It's powering all this stuff. It's powering the business. And when something goes wrong, you got to dive in and figure out what went wrong and make a fix. And the older that system is, the more years that have passed since the last person looked into that code, the more difficult it is to actually do anything in the code base. And as vendors play games with licenses like Oracle did with Java not too long ago, mm. it sends all of us scurrying for our desks trying to figure out, <laughs> oh my gosh, who was here at the time? Because the employees have long since moved on. Yeah, Some of the code that we were dealing with in my last job was like JDK 6, JDK 7. And all of a sudden, all the licensing issues come up. We're like, <laughs> we need to go to OpenJDK. But our customers are depending on these services. Who knows what? Like, yeah. There must be many crisis moments, almost like Y2K, that you all get called into. I'm curious about what's the most surprising thing that someone has needed you to help them with at a project level since you started the company? I mean, things were surprising at the time, but now less surprising. You know, when we first built Sourcegraph, Quinn and I were largely focused on making developers' day-to-day -day life more productive and nicer quality of life. But along the way, a lot of these enterprise or company-driven use cases popped up, You know, one of which is compliance. So license compliance, uh, often it pops up in situations where one company is acquiring another and they need to do an audit of the source code and they want to search through and find all the different licenses that are in use and where they're in use. And there's software that does that kind of on an automatic basis, but where Sourcegraph really shines is what if you go in and dig a little deeper into the source code, figure out you know what depends on this and where it's actually used. Another big use case that has emerged is for security. So let's say you become aware of a zero-day vulnerability uh, or new CVE gets published, and now you have to go and remediate that vulnerability. Well, there's a lot of tools that tell you about when CVEs pop up and which dependencies they pop up in. There are a lot fewer tools that actually help you close the remediation gap. So actually take action and take action efficiently. So a lot of what we see is this kind of this gap between the security team and the development team, where the security team, they think their job is I'm going to take the reports from the scanner, I'm going to write these up and say we need to fix all these things. And then here you go, development team, go fix these. And the development team's like, wait, what? We have features to ship, we have bugs to fix. Uh, this is low priority, unless you can prove to me that some of this code is actually getting used. Because a lot of times you pull in code that's vulnerable, but you're, you're not actually using it. And so that's where source graph comes in real handy, because you actually can dive into the, the reference graph and figure out if you're actually prone to this vulnerability. That's awesome. This is like x-ray vision for distributed systems. It's amazing. I want to go back to your comment that you loved your compiler classes. What may not be obvious to everyone listening is that you think of code as text, but a compiler has a model and its job is to turn that code into data. And so you've just described really eloquently how you look into the dependencies of all of those pieces of data 
and then say, oh, this is what the graph looks like. So you've arranged it as a graph. Graph is the name of the company. And you're one of the leaders in a wave that is shifting from APIs that are fairly flat, REST-based APIs, right? The representational state transfer. A lot of people just use RESTful, and it's really a CRUD interface over HTTP, like what's my get put mechanism? But you've gone with GraphQL. So that's a fascinating technology. I'd love you to just share what GraphQL is and why you thought that GraphQL was a good representation or interface to the work that you're doing at SourceGraph. I would say the motivation for us to switch from mostly a RESTful API to mostly a GraphQL API was just motivated by practical considerations. REST is really good when you want to establish an external API and have a really well-defined and easy-to-understand API for external users. If you're an API company and there's a couple of key pieces of functionality that you want to make accessible to people building on top of your API. But when you're building an application and you have a front-end and back-end, that front-end is going to be querying for all sorts of information in different ways. And with REST, it becomes difficult to keep the number of API calls that have to be made to a small number. Because with REST, there's a repository endpoint. There is a commit endpoint. There is a author endpoint. And so if you want to pull together all the pieces of information to constitute one page where you might have a repository with multiple authors shown and other information, all of a sudden you're hitting a dozen or more endpoints. And so that's rather inefficient from the point of view of the end user who's sitting there waiting for the information on the page to load. And GraphQL just provides a, a very nice general interface for describing you know, all the pieces of information that you might need in one API request. And so that's why we made the switch. Yeah, I love the focus on developer quality of life. Yes. <laughs> and I will say this, like even though we we made the switch with an eye towards our internal use case. We now expose that same API to our customers. And we do have customers that are building on top of the interface. And in some ways, I would say it's probably a little bit more difficult to get up and running because there isn't a nice list of RESTful endpoints that you need to hit. But it is a lot more flexible in terms of what you can request. And there's tooling that helps out with this too. So we ship the GraphQL playground embedded in our application so that users can just go in there and play around with that and have full autocomplete and experiment with API requests in the application itself. I imagine that's also been helpful in attracting people to your open source community, right? Because the gate function on people who are going to contribute or participate in an open source project is, can I get through the gate? Can I understand it? Will people bring me in? And most keenly, I think most of us who are developers are pretty introverted. And one of the things I think that's common about us sort of over-intellectualized introverts is we don't want to show that we can't figure it out. <laughs> so the better that you can show us enough I can relate can to that. ourselves, yeah. <laughs> right? we want to see something intelligent the first time, yep. right? So the way that you've structured SourceGraph, the way that you've structured GraphQL probably all helps you, but I'd love for you to take us into your open source community. What does it look like? What do you hope to see there maybe over the next few years? Yeah, totally. So we have a pretty vibrant user community that's using SourceGraph. SourceGraph itself follows the open core model, so it's dual license. There is a core, which is probably the vast majority of functionality. So this includes the search index and global graph of code that I described earlier. All that is contained within the 
core open source uh, code base. And then around that, we have enterprise specific code that gets pulled in for things like SSO and authorization. We have this advanced refactoring feature. We have a feature that allows you to track trends and code over time. Those are in the enterprise code base. But as far as you know, things that are interesting to an individual developer, we try to make that in the open source part of the code base as much as possible. And in terms of user community, we have a public issue tracker. We have a Discord that anyone can join. We can maybe drop a link to that in the show notes if people want to pop in. Anyone is welcome. We get a lot of people there ranging from folks who've never heard of us before who are dropping in and wanting to learn more about what it is we do and how to use the product all the way to people who have some question about the application or maybe it's this admin we have a lot of on-premises or self-hosted customers sometimes there's issues they run into and they just drop by and say hello and have a developer to developer conversation i would say we're still pretty early on in fostering the community i think there's still a lot of potential there so if you know folks are listening and interested in getting involved find the mission and vision compelling please drop by and say hello i really hope that everybody who's listening does drop by and say hello this is such a powerful vision and not just a vision it's in production you can use this stuff and it could make your life easier today and if not maybe a developer that you love beyond what's a question that You've always wanted to be asked, but nobody's asked you. I had the privilege of being (laughs) on Corey Quinn's Cloudcast, and he asked me that in the beginning of the show. And I was like, what an amazing opportunity to represent my thoughts and not just what I'm paid to do. Now, you're you're an innovator and you're a founder, so maybe that's where a lot of this is. But I'm curious, like, what's nobody asked you that they should have asked? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. So the half-joking answer is, what's the best editor? And the simple answer there is is Emacs. It's the one true editor. <laughs> My fellow list person. So awesome. Yes, Emacs is unclearly hands down the best editor. And now we're going to have an enormous posse of pitchfork torch people coming for us on the internet. Totally. And I say that uh, we have a lot, large number of Vim users on the team. Vim and NeoVim, I should say. I have to plug Emacs. I, sometimes I find it hard to get a, a word in edgewise with all the love for Vim in our... Well, unlike uh, Vim, Emacs <laughs> is actually beautiful. Exactly, exactly. And it's recursively beautiful because in the same language that it's written, you can improve it. Like it's just, It just all makes sense, right? Emacs forever. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so you've had a pretty meteoric career in a short amount of time. And I know a bunch of people who are listening are going to be inspired. Like, this is really cool stuff. How can I use that as a role model? How can I pattern myself after that? Or what can I learn from that? What advice do you give to people who are excited about software, excited about coding, excited about infrastructure, and want to go build new companies and make an impact? I would say it's always difficult to give general advice, right? Because everyone's situation is a little bit different. I have a younger brother, and sometimes he comes to me for advice. I wouldn't use myself as a prime example here, but my philosophy is that a lot of success in life comes from centralizing a sense of agency within yourself, you know, recognizing that there actually is a lot of stuff that you can do as an individual. We are all capable of so much. And in some sense, there's never been a better time to live if the sort of thing you want to do is create something new and and share it with the world. The internet has enabled people with no like real connection to institutions or elite centers of power to go and, and share their creations with the world and gain widespread recognition. And I think the best ideas start with one person noticing something 
you know, maybe they're scratching an itch. Maybe they see potential for something really cool to be made. You go and make that. Then you share it with the people around you, see if that clicks, and then you go from there. So I would say like we are living in the golden age of the individual, so to speak. Like anyone who has an idea, especially in the world of software, can go and create the kernel of that idea, share it with others, get feedback, and try to build something of a movement around it. And I think that's just so wonderful. And I hope Sourcegraph can play a small part in enabling you know many more people to realize that is possible. That is so awesome. I'm really grateful for the philosophy and also grateful for the servant leadership of creating a tool that helps other people create their lives and their tools, what brings us to the game. So Byung, thank you for your time and your thoughtfulness and your insight. I cannot wait to get the feedback on your ideas. And I hope tons of people will come and check out Sourcegraph and join your movement. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Sam. I'm backstage with our awesome executive producer, Audra Montenegro. Audra, what stood out for you from that conversation? I loved that Biong told us that he was scratching an itch. So he told us about his aha moment when he was spending too much time exploring code instead of adding to it. And then that was his motivation to create Sourcegraph. So Sourcegraph's goal is to map code search like Google has mapped the internet. And so exploring code should be as easy as doing a Google search. And that's the way to make good use of developers' time to better increase code intelligence, as you said, because the responsibility for developers is growing, right? Like you mentioned something about contracts in the Bitcoin world that developers are having to do. I mean gosh, they better be intelligent with that code, right? And then lastly, too, Byung said, there's so much diversity nowadays in terms of how code is built. So it's pretty hard to learn things quickly because of that diversity. And you could really tell that Byung's passion with making the quality of developer life better shines through to things like using GraphQL versus REST because of the flexibility it provides for developers. That's awesome. Thanks, Audrey. And thanks for making the show what it is. Well, a big thank you to our audience for joining us today. If you like the show, please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Please drop me a tweet at Open Source Data Podcast. And a special thanks to the Caspian Studios team. Our producer, Alexa Minter. Remember, it's Minter, not Winter. For program management, Vidam Yuri and Kyle Ruska. For audio and visual engineering, Scott Goodrich and Evan Ha, as well as creative producer Landon Pontius. And of course, the DataStacks team, including social leader Lauren Gole and Katie Asher with the web design team. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>